Before we get started, I have a few thank yous for supporters of the podcast who use the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes. Emily and Emily's husband, Nicholas Doran, Susan and David Kibitluski. A sincere thanks to you all. If you would like to support the show, all you have to do is follow, like, and review kindly. It really does help. And now... Chicago already had two of the most impressive World's Fairs in its history, so when the opportunity came up for the city to potentially host another one in the 1990s, boy howdy were people excited. But you need more than just excitement to pull off an event of this scale. This is the story of Chicago's World's Fair of 1992. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. World's Fair of 1893 is still talked about today, not just by history nerds like me, but because it was a huge deal. Between 25 and 27 million people came to Chicago at a time when the country only had 63 million people. It was the first time many got to see new innovations and learn about other cultures, other countries, even just other states. The World's Fair of 1933, called a century of progress, proved so popular, even during the Great Depression, that it was extended into 1934. It was a look at the past and of developing technology and gave the roughly 40 million visitors of the total U.S. population of 125.5 million a mind-blowing experience. During the early 1900s, other major cities around the U.S. had their own World's Fairs, including one in 1904 in St. Louis that included Chicago's hand-me-down Ferris wheel that had been first displayed at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. I actually talk about the Ferris wheel and its time in use in Lincoln Park, of all places, in episode 122 of this podcast. In the 1930s alone, World's Fairs were plentiful. In addition to the one in Chicago in 1933 and 1934, San Diego had one in 1935 and 1936. Cleveland hosted theirs in 1936 and 1937. Dallas also had one in 36 and 37. And both San Francisco and New York hosted fairs in 1939 and 1940. There was a long gap in the following years where the U.S. did not host a World's Fair, partially owing to that pesky World War. The next World's Fair on U.S. soil was in Seattle in 1962. As for Chicago's quest to hold another World's Fair, well, in 1954, quote, a committee of young industrialists with an eye to the future, end quote, joined together to discuss the feasibility of a third World's Fair here in 1976, a bicentennial fair. Calling themselves the Committee of 76, the group, headed by John E. Stipp, president of Federal Home Loan Bank, was also hopeful they could land the 1976 Olympic Games to run concurrently with the fair. Can you imagine the traffic. According to the story in the Chicago Tribune, 
The committee purposely kept its membership young in the expressed hope that most of its members would still be alive at the end of the 22-year project. Group head John Stipp commented, quote, The Committee of 76 envisions this event as a nationwide commemoration of the growth and development of this great country in its 200 years. We think Chicago, roughly 1,000 miles away from this nation's birthplace, is a fitting symbol of America expansion, end quote. For those of you who aren't sure how all that turned out, Chicago's efforts to land the 1976 World's Fair and the 76 Olympics did not come to fruition. In 1977, Chicago architect Harry Weiss gave a presentation to influential Chicago businessmen and architects to offer his ideas for a possible World's Fair in 1992. Weiss's vision included an extended lakefront site from Navy Pier to what was then Miggs Field on Northerly Island, with the two structures connected by a sky ride. In 1978, Chicago officials told the Bureau of International Expositions, the Paris-based governing authority for World's Fairs, that the city wanted to host one in 1992. A committee was soon formed to explore Chicago's potential to carry out those plans. Tapped ahead of this new committee was Thomas G. Ayers, retired chairman of Commonwealth Edison. Ayers was described as, quote, hopeful but cautious, end quote. During the first week of his non-salaried gig, he discussed the project with then-Mayor Jane Byrne, who reserved comment. I've no illusion that this is a sure thing, Ayers said. Its success depends on whether we can come up with a concept that has the possibilities of being exciting. We're taking a cold-blooded look at how to put it together and how to finance it. That's a big item. Mayor Byrne later came around, throwing her support behind the idea. In Byrne's Chicago 1992 Comprehensive Plan, released in 1982, a number of goals for the city during the following decade were outlined, including a 10-year capital development strategy and recommendations concerning the formation of neighborhood planning districts. This was the first update to the city's comprehensive plan since former Mayor Richard J. Daly's in 1966. The first page of the Byrne Report included a letter from Jane Byrne to the citizens of Chicago, announcing that the plan would facilitate, quote, Chicago's evolution into an international city, end quote, and ask citizens to examine our weaknesses honestly and attend to these problems efficiently. The letter included a photograph of Byrne and Fair Committee head Tom Ayers looking down at a glass-enclosed architectural model of the lakefront and proposed fair site. One early proposal for the Chicago Fair, now being called Age of Discovery, involved getting federal assistance to build a new island for the 1992's fair's use, which could later be converted into parkland. Now, critics of this idea felt that the era of World's Fairs may have been over, but that dismissive notion had been around since the 1920s. Indeed, skeptics of the A Century of Progress exposition told those promoters that the popularity of radios would keep people home, 
those skeptics were wrong. Adding support to the idea of Chicago hosting a World's Fair was then-President Ronald Reagan, who issued a memorandum in November of 1982 that read, in part, Subject, Chicago World's Fair 1992 Age of Discovery. I have reviewed the reports and recommendations presented to me by you and the Secretary of State that recognition be given to the Chicago World's Fair 1992 Age of Discovery and find that such recognition will be in the national interest. I approve granting federal recognition to the exposition with the understanding that the federal participation in the fair will not exceed $90 million over the next 10-year period. On that basis, please advise the appropriate agencies that official recognition is hereby granted. In 1983, the Paris-based Bureau of International Expositions, that governing body that oversees these events, chartered Chicago and Seville, Spain, to host simultaneous expositions to mark the 500th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of the New World. Donald Petkiss, vice president of Chicago 92, seemed pretty confident everything was headed in the right direction. We believe this will be the largest World's Fair ever held, said Petkus. It will bring millions of visitors to Chicago and hundreds of millions of dollars. And when we are done, Chicago will have a new 600-acre downtown lakefront park. There are still some major obstacles ahead, but I think we will overcome them. In case you're wondering, what about the suburbs? Donald Petkus, now listed as Vice President-slash-Treasurer of the Chicago World's Fair 1992 Corporation, told South Suburban Chamber of Commerce members in October of 1983 that the entire metropolitan area would benefit, including South Cook County. Projections at that time showed the fair could create as many as 40,000 new jobs, although some just temporary, while pumping as much as $1 billion into the area's economy. All those jobs and that sweet, sweet cash would be generated by the expected 65 million people who would visit the city between May 1st and October 1st, 1992. One-day tickets would cost about $12.50, which is roughly $37 in today's money. But with fair packages, guests would pay roughly $9.35 for most tickets. So how does a city pay for all the funding required for an event this size? The majority of the funds was to come from the sale of about a half billion, that's half billion with a B, dollars of tax-free bonds, also to pay interest incurred during construction until the fair started making back money. The 1992 corporation planned to lobby Illinois' state legislature, to institute a statewide 1% tax on hotels and motels, which fair organizers were confident would raise $6 million per year. They did drop their request for a $0.02 per pack tax on cigarettes. There were many critics of this entire Chicago World's Fair project, including those who felt that instead of spending money and resources for a temporary fair based at the lakefront, the fair should instead focus on making it part of permanent improvements for the city. 
In March of 1983, Carl Rauchenberger, president of Burnham and Hammond Architects, suggested that if the ferry used an area along the Chicago River South Branch, it would turn an eyesore into an economic and aesthetic triumph for the city, according to an article in the Chicago Tribune. Rauchenberger's plan was for a 450-acre fairground, smaller than the nearly 600-acre Lakefront One, stretching along both sides of the river from Harrison Street south to Cermak Road, which at the time was filled with abandoned railroad yards. Although many of the exhibits would be dismantled after the end of the fair, Rauchenberger said good planning could yield permanent residuals such as a, wait for it, domed stadium an indoor amusement park, and office residential complexes, all overlooking a beautiful south branch of the river. Rauchenberger's views on the lakefront site planned by the World's Fair Corporation? It would produce, quote, a lovely park in the lake, but the most expensive park the world has ever seen, end quote. Rauschenberger also expressed concerns about the environmental impact of the fair if held at the lakefront. One of his main concerns was where the landfill would be sourced, as no in-depth report on the process had been released. In a March 24, 1983 press release, Rauschenberger's claimed that it would take... 13 million cubic yards of landfill to create the 180-acre site that's proposed. That's one and a half million truckloads, or a convoy 8,000 miles long. If we assume one truck a minute dumping its load into the site, seven days a week, eight hours a day, it would take eight and one half years to fill the site. When reached for comment about moving the fair to the Chicago River area, Bernadette Tram, a spokesperson for the Fair Corporation, said only modifications to the lakefront site were still being considered, not alternative sites. Tram said switching to the South Branch would require the corporation to start all over in obtaining permits from U.S. Commerce Department and the Bureau of International Expositions. By June of 1984, supporters of the 1992 Chicago World's Fair plan were seeking $900 million in funding for the fair, with $450 million coming from the state and $450 million coming from the private sector. Then-Governor Jim Thompson was on board, as was Mayor Harold Washington. The thing that changed everything for the plans for a World's Fair in Chicago, it was actually another fair, one held in New Orleans in 1984. Held 100 years after New Orleans' earlier World's Fair, the theme for the 1984 one was the world of rivers, fresh waters as a source of life. For the site of that fair, an 84-acre area along the Mississippi River was cleared of rundown warehouses. $350 million was spent to host the New Orleans Fair, including $5 million in state funds. Opening May 12, 1984, the fair drew 30,000 fewer attendees the first month than anticipated, and it went downhill from there, only drawing 7.3 million visitors. It has the distinction of being the only exposition to declare bankruptcy during its run, which ended November 11, 1984. 
Those looking to set blame pointed out the fact that this event occurred just two years and two states after the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee. The New Orleans Fair coincided with the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles and Walt Disney World's Epcot Center opening in Orlando in 1982 was also still a significant draw for families. The World's Fair in New Orleans was and is universally considered a disaster with an attendance shortfall of 40% and debts of $140 million, nearly $338 million today. Closer to home, an opinion piece in a November 1984 Peoria Journal Star newspaper may have summed up what many at the time were thinking. With the failure of the World's Fair in New Orleans, it would be difficult for Chicago to justify their own in 1992. Plans limped along with more bickering about the best spot for the site of the fair, a proposal to move it to the marshy area on the south side near Lake Calumet gained some momentum, but with public support of the fair never that strong and with estimates showing that 50 million people would need to attend the fair for it to remain solvent, the writing was on the wall. And because Chicago, on June 20th, 1985, when it was announced that the fair in Chicago would not move forward, $12 million in both public and private funding had already been spent on fair efforts. The Seville Expo 92 opened in April of that year on 531 acres of land, attracting nearly 42 million visitors. The theme of that expo was the Age of Discovery, celebrating the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus reaching the Americas. The United States was represented by a large pavilion funded by General Motors, Amway, and other corporate sponsors. There was no corresponding event in the United States. In 2017, the U.S. candidates, given the chance to bid on the opportunity to host the 2023 Expo, was Minnesota, but that did not come together. The United States lost its first bid to host a World's Fair in 40 years to Argentina. The next opportunity for the U.S. to host an Expo will be 2027, 28, or 2030. Mina Chow, an adjunct associate professor at the USC School of Architecture and the director of the documentary Face of a Nation, What Happened to the World's Fair, feels that even in a world where the Internet gives most everyone access to other cultures, World's Fairs are still important. The World Expo movement has always been about the best of human civilization, says Chow. Right now we're living through some of the worst of it. The World's Fair is something that we need to celebrate why we belong together. listening to today's episode about Chicago's 1992 World's Fair. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. 
If you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd sure love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Want to leave me a voice message? Go to chicagohistorypod.com and click on the microphone in the lower right corner. Depending on the content of your message, I may play it on a future episode, so keep it clean. Continuing to amaze me, John K. Schneider, the guy behind that amazing art for the podcast you see used on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. If you need art for your project, reach out to John at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in. Stay safe.